citizens. Welcome to Forecasting Crew, an omni-consumer products podcast. Each week, Jason and Chris have a fun, free-form discussion about a movie from the past and tell you what you should think about it. Plus, when you listen, you can earn crew cash. It's like money, but more fun because it can only be redeemed at OCP depositories for a wide selection of products, including snacks, t-shirts, bladed weapons, and convenient single-serve poison portions, perfect for when you start suspecting your neighbor of, well, anything. Omni Consumer Products has a wide variety of subsidiaries handling so much of what's important in life, from birthing units to cremation services, so without even knowing it, you're probably already paying us. And we'll be hearing from some of those subsidiaries throughout the show. So sit back, relax, and let us do the thinking for you. It's really so much easier, Chris. I used to spend a lot of my time and energy thinking, but once I realized that OCP had a wide variety of products available for me to remove that, I've got so much time to consume other great OCP products. I can just sit in a chair and eat. We are living in RoboCop. Watching this last night, I was like, holy fucking shit. This group of people were talk about predicting the future. Yeah, I mean, I know, I think, what was it we mentioned that a couple weeks ago that seemed so prescient, but this is on the nose. It's kind of like Idiocracy meets Blade Runner. Idiocracy, I kept thinking of whenever they would have that guy saying, I'd buy that for a dollar. And whoever it was with the TV. Good guys, bad guys, smart people, dumb people, everybody in the streets, they all loved this sitcom. Uh, Privatization of public safety, the militarization of our police on the backs of horrible tragedies. I mean, this is all in this movie. And on your nightly news. Yeah. I don't know where to start. I mean, it's just so the fake commercials that air, the newscasts. The satire is so biting and so dark. It's hard to imagine this was a Paul Verhoeven movie from the time, well, I'm not going to say before Paul Verhoeven went off the rails with things like Showgirls, Mm -hmm. because this is pretty off the rails in its own way, but it's focused off the rails. Yeah. He tries to defend Showgirls nowadays with such a hodgepodge of kind of bullshit, saying that You know, people didn't understand my over-the-top take on the material was meant to illustrate how ridiculous Las Vegas is, and this is really what these people are like, which I guess you could call it a camp classic if you want to, but you can't defend it as good. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably would. I have to admit, I've I've never actually... So since you haven't, <laughs> there's enough you know crap what, Chris? with boobs out there in the world that I was like, eh, I don't know that I need this one. Well, one of the producers of the film or writers described Robocop in one of the making of featurettes as social satire with some very real emotion in it, which I think is true. Yes. They were comparing it to Terminator, which came out the same year. Is that true? No, but it was the same company. It was also Orion. It was, it was Orion. And I think- When did Terminator come out? 84. I think it was 84. So it's a year before. I haven't seen Terminator in a long time, but I don't remember it being a social satire. Did you watch, what is it, Flesh and Steel, the making yes. of Robocop? Yeah. And I think in that they said uh, that Terminator was Orion's first big hit. And they even only made that because they were like, oh, this will be a quick infusion of cash. Mm-hmm. They want it to be artier, like all of us- Sure. <laughs> All schlockmeisters aspire to the, art. Exactly. Art doesn't pay, That's man. Why they made the Terminator, and then they were like, oh my gosh, this sci-fi is such a great vein for cash. And that led to Robocop. Robocop. Robocop getting greenlit. The comparison that somebody made was Terminator was much more of a straight horror film, while Robocop was, you know, is a satire. I saw that quote, but I don't think of Terminator as a horror film at all. I think of it as an action film. Yeah. I mean, there's a horror? certain amount of in a suspense sort of way, because they're being chased, they're being pursued by the killer. Yeah. There was fear in that way. But no, you're right. I wouldn't have called it a horror film either, but somebody else did. 
Well, as long as someone else did, you've got cover. <laughs> it's Chris. not my problem. Well, let's play one of the first hints in the film that you are watching a pitch black yeah. social satire, which is the scene in the boardroom where uh, Ed 209, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. is debuted in when you watch these movies in what feels like a sort of familiar setting we're in a corporate boardroom there are yuppie strivers competing with each other for the boss's attention and one executive is debuting his version of a robotic police presence The enforcement droid, Series 209, is a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. 209 is currently programmed for urban pacification, but that is only the beginning. After a successful tour of duty in old Detroit, we can expect 209 to become the hot military product for the next decade. Mr. Kenny. Yes, sir. Would you come up and give us a hand, please? Yes, sir. Mr. Kenny is going to help us simulate a typical arrest and disarming procedure. Mr. Kenny, use your gun in a threatening manner. Point it at Ed 209. Yes, sir. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. I think you'd better do what he says, Mr. Kenny. You now have 15 seconds to comply. You are in direct violation of Code 113, Section 9. You now have five seconds to comply. It sets up and you're sort of like, okay, the machine's going to freak out a little bit, but it's going to get under control. Yeah. And it's, it's not going to like, you, there's a version of the movie where that happens and <laughs> the corpse is not riddled with an obscene amount of gunfire yeah. and bloodshed. But when it goes there, which if you saw this film in the movie theaters, you wouldn't have seen that exact scene because no, I was that was, was cut. If- so we're lucky that we're watching it now and able to see how it was intended because Verhoeven is right. He said that unless you go so far over the top with the violence, it doesn't make the satirical point. Mm -hmm. If you have just enough violence in the MPAA rating system. You're left with something that it's realistic enough that you're having the opposite reaction than what the director intended. Yes. There's three shots cutting back and forth to the machine riddling the guy. It's just so bloody and over the top. He falls into a model of the model city that the corporation is going to build. Another thing that we're seeing and living through when you had like Amazon trying to come to New York, right? Yep. The yuppies are brilliant. Uh, Miguel Ferrer is brilliant in this as the lead yuppie. And this is a great example of the movie truism that when you cast a character actor against type, Mm -hmm. you achieve maximum evil. Mm -hmm. So Ronnie Cox as Jones, the guy who walks up to the head of the company at the end of that clip and says, I'm sure it's just a glitch. Mm -hmm. Making, just not even caring about his former colleague who's just been 
brutally killed. Let's not cast any aspersions against any OCP executives, otherwise the checks will stop coming. Oh, you're right. It's it's going to be very difficult for me to adapt to our new corporate masters. I hope that they don't come and take me away. I, I don't know, that does them. sound... I think they're ripping the side of the podcasting studio off and I'm being extracted. Doors open, guys! <laughs> Hello, Chris. I am your new host. I am the JC Bot 900. Oh, finally, they got my letter. Thank you. Um, yeah, Ronnie but, Cox, who used to play everybody's avuncular father or kindly old country music guitar strummer. Deliverance, he's one of the four and the one who plays the banjo yeah. in the dueling banjo scene. He, and he's gone on since to play a lot of these yes. similar kind of things. And this has become much more of a stock. It just seems like a sort of a stereotype of the older gray man in a gray flannel suit. And Kurtwood Smith was another Kurt one Wood that Smith. they man. passed against type. God, he was great in this. Yeah. He's obviously a good enough actor. And Kurtwood Smith plays the main criminal villain mastermind in RoboCop, who turns out to be in the pocket of... Of uh, Jones. What's the character's first name? Uh, yeah, actually, I did Dick, notice that. It's he's, Dick Jones. Maybe Jason Bott. It was Dick Jones. How did I live without this thing? <laughs> so that's how we start. There's some brilliant fake newscasts and brilliant fake commercials. But this is where we get into the main setup for the film, which is a corporation now control law enforcement, which is not so far from what we're living in right now. They are militarizing the police, which is exactly what we're living through right now. Post 9-11, so much money flooded to law enforcement mm -hmm. that you can go to small towns in America and see ridiculously over-militarized police departments that have no need for body armor and tanks right. and rockets and all this crazy shit that they're just completely lubed up on. When you've got that stuff, you use it. Yeah, so you, you have to all use of it, these man. horrible stories of small-time criminals be, you know, yeah. <laughs> having like an army mobilized against them. Dude, I was just trying to steal a TV set, <laughs> you know? You don't need the like ninth mobile division. Yeah. And we're living in a time, I saw a video where a company is proposing a small traveling robot that would go between a police car that pulls over a motorist on a traffic stop uh -huh. and the police car so that the police officer doesn't get out of the car and ask the motorist for their license and registration. And the reasoning, even though it's not said in the video, is very clearly to de-escalate racial confrontations between white police officers pulling over black motorists. Yeah. And the idea that, well, there's just nothing we can do. I mean, gosh, we better just send a robot. That's the only thing we can do to prevent these completely ridiculous officer overreactions mm -hmm. resulting in shootings is to send a little wheeled robot over. That's something that's happening right now. Or could be in RoboCop. You know, I watched a little bit of the sequel, RoboCop 2, and they did seem to- Did uh, you watch RoboCop 2? I watched about uh, half of it. RoboCop has and, spawned so many things. Oh, yeah. So there is what, how many official film sequels are we talking? Four? Let me see, I've got the- Two sequels, a television series, mm -hmm. a remake, two different animated series. Well, when you say a remake. The 2014 uh, RoboCop. Is a remake of the this one we just watched? Yeah. Like shot for shot, like no, same no, no. storyline, remake or? in the sense of like it's a reboot. You mean maybe reboot is a better okay. Uh, uh, television miniseries, video games, and a number of comic book adaptations and crossovers. And the funniest to me because my first memory of this movie was it was like the first thing my parents ever said that I couldn't go see <laughs> because all oh, it was rated X probably or no. I mean it had gotten down to an R by Not the time, it was, R. but I remember being at summer camp and just seeing poster and being like, what the 
This is like, <laughs> finally, Jeez. my prayers have been answered. This looked amazing. And all people would talk about was the amount of violence and the fact that it almost had an X rating. And so the fact that it then <laughs> gave birth to two children's cartoons is fulfilling some <laughs> of the satire. I actually watched the opening and they're very gentle uh-huh. with how Murphy is mortally wounded. Mm. Detroit, the near future. Officer Alex J. Murphy and his partner, Ann Lewis, fight to rid the decaying city of the criminal element which invests it. After being mortally wounded in the line of duty, Officer Murphy is outfitted by OCP. Yeah, they just say, like, in the line of duty, he was mortally wounded, and they sort of cut away before... <laughs> before what that actually meant plays out. So Peter Weller was in RoboCop 1 and RoboCop 2, Mm -hmm. but not in RoboCop 3. Right. And that's where he was replaced by, what's his name? Uh, John Lee Burke. I didn't get this far in because I just returned from Los Angeles uh, yesterday morning. I would have definitely looked for like the articles that explain why he wasn't in RoboCop 3, but maybe you can explain. And it was Robert John Burke, excuse me. Yes, Robert John Burke. Um, He just didn't want to do it. He had enough. Mm -hmm. But I did see RoboCop 3 filmed at the same time as Naked Lunch. Ah. Now, whether it was a conflict, but it could also be like, no, I've made my money from this. I don't want to get back in that friggin' suit, which is painful and yeah. all that. Book Up 2 is 1990. Right. Naked Lunch came out in 1991. You could certainly imagine saying, you know what? I'm going to go do this David Cronenberg adaptation of a classic William S. Burroughs novel instead of putting myself through the abject hell that apparently the RoboCop shoot certainly was for everyone involved, and particularly for Peter Weller, who, man, it'd be hard to pick an actor who conveys as much of the humanity of Murphy and as the RoboCop as Peter Weller does. Mm -hmm. I mean, they kind of joke a little bit in the feature that they basically picked him because he had a strong jaw, and they knew that that would be the only portion of his face you would see in the RoboCop costume. Or as they put it, an expressive lower half of his face. Yes. And also the right lithe body type for the suit, which apparently he would drop two to three pounds of water weight a day when they were filming some of the scenes taking place in Pittsburgh, ironically, since we just did another movie shot in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, which was like in the middle of some crazy heat wave. And so inside it was supposed to be, I don't know, this, sound, this is like one of those apocryphal. Right. Was, like, was it really 130 degrees? I don't, I, I, I don't know. Isn't that like the temperature of the sun? I think the sun doesn't get quite that hot. The sun is like boiling water, basically. If you were to, you <laughs> Very know, much. it's not much worse. Oh, listen, I don't know if I ever told you, you know, I had some experience with boiling water a few months ago. God, let's not get back into this. <laughs> you know what? You could have your arm replaced like Peter Weller did. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play a clip of that scene. I love all the scenes where they're altering Murphy's body. This is a really well-directed movie. Yeah. I came away so impressed. It's so funny how Paul Verhoeven, he never made a movie as good as this again. As no. sharp and satirical and smart as this again. You know, Total Recall is a very good movie. Yeah. Uh, but Starship actually, Troopers is also quite... Like, there's a lot going on there, but it doesn't necessarily, I think, work quite as well because it's not as sharp of a satire. Starship Troopers, to me, is the sci-fi equivalent in his reinventionist history of Showgirls. He's trying to also say that that was supposed to be a satire. I didn't really get that when I saw it. I only saw it when it came out in the theaters. Yeah. But I mean, because uh, I, I also saw it when it came out in yeah. uh, 1997. And I think I was tuned knowing that it was supposed to be exaggerated. And one thing that I find, and I wish I could think of other examples of right. movies, like, it was the only movie that I've ever heard of that deliberately was trying to undermine the source material. Uh, Starship Troopers was written by Robert Heinlein, who... I'm sure he's a perfectly nice man in some ways, but had some sort of uh, militaristic tendencies. And that book really reflected that. 
and according to Verhoeven, and I did see it when watching the movie, but, you know, again, mm-hmm. maybe I was just primed. He was undermining that and mm. talking about the threat of it by exaggerating what so show, the- So showing the, like, amped up shock troops gung-ho on destruction was a commentary on, like, militaristic might and that yeah, sort of thing? because the good guys are sort of getting, uh, I think Neil Patrick Harris plays uh, one of the good guys, mm-hmm. not one of the more militaristic, but he's like a scientist or something. And he starts dressing- <laughs> More and more like a Nazi. People love it. I, I'd have to see it again. It struck me always as kind of like not enough of one and too much of the other. Not as sharp as this. Well, in, yeah, in because words. I think, you know, there are a lot of themes in right. this, but privatization, commercialization, right. like those are kind of real world yeah. rubber hits the road. To talk about fascism, it gets a little bit too ethereal. And so the differences between when you're satirizing yeah. and when you're just doing like a huge action movie can be just harder to to see. Also, his career is such a great example that more doesn't always mean better. Like, mm-hmm. as he got more resources, the films did not match the quality that they had when he was forced to make do with less. This is not a big budget movie. Hell, Ray Harryhausen could have shot the scenes of the Ed 290. The thing right. is in stop motion animation, yep. which is jarring to look at now for 1987. I mean, shit, Star Wars looks better than that. <laughs> the special effects are by Rob Bottin, who did the yes. suit. Uh, the stop motion stuff was done by another special effects guy. And he said they didn't even have the budget to do like proper stop motion, like blue screen stop motion. Right. They were doing it on little sets. So the scene, you know, at the end of the movie where the Ed 290 can't navigate stairs and falls down, they showed the little stairs that they made in the four foot right. tall model. But it looks janky or boogity is actually an industry term that I learned from my friend Jason Bakudis. And that just means like crappy and cheap looking? In the special effects community, boogity, now it's become a more widely used term for janky special effects, but its original use was things that looked really rubbery and fake. Uh-huh. I think I was trying to make fun of you the other day. Lots of Because luck. you were on Twitter lamenting the cancellation of a pretty bad television series, uh, Swamp Thing. Oh, you've seen it? You've seen yeah. all 10 episodes, well, even I though saw, they've only released one? I saw one, half of one, which is all I needed to see to know that it was really bad. Oh, I thought and it was that great. monster was completely boogity. Terrible. That monster sitting up in the in the morgue. It's all like rubber parts hanging off of him. It looked terrible. I don't look really good. Phil Tippett but created the stop motion Boogie effects. Deep. Speaking of Phil Tippett, friend of the pod and full cast and crew special effects VFX consultant Jason Bakudis texts me this interesting nugget. He said that Phil was supposed to do the stop motion for the first Jurassic Park film, which as you recall was the first big CGI movie. And that he went in and saw, quote, what the computer guys were coming up with and literally almost died from an existential crisis because his entire skill set was so clearly obsolete. It's literally like when you hear about um, like silent movie actors, the first time <laughs> yeah. they see a movie with sound, they're like, ah, oh, fuck. Ed 290 is boogity. The RoboCop outfit is actually, it looks fairly simple and he moves in it great. But when you read about and watch all the shit they went through to get there, Rob Bottin making that suit, I mean, it's a brilliant suit. I'm sure you read, and I think it was also in the documentary when they talked about the saga of the design, trying to make it bigger and better, add more things, add different influences. Everybody had their two cents. I'm like, oh, did you see Robotech do something like this? Rob Bottin had to semi-patiently wait for them to go through all this until they came back and realized, like, this works great. Verhoeven reminds me a lot of Terry Gilliam. Yeah. He has a very funny manner of telling stories kind of against himself, but not really. Rob Bottin tells him, this is why it has to be this way. Rob Bottin actually did all the thinking that he's supposed to do. And then Verhoeven in that story is like, I threw away 50% of everything that was good, and I didn't realize until much later that we needed to return to the original. I was like, yeah, you didn't listen to the guy you hired to do the job. 
And then he says the same thing later about something else. Related to this, Peter Weller, who oh, it was Peter flipped Weller. out because yes. he's like, I didn't get a chance to practice in this friggin' suit. Right. So they were behind and they show up on the day they're going to shoot like the first suit shots. And none of what Peter Weller has prepared with his motion guy right. is applicable anymore because, hey, here's the new suit, which takes him 11 hours to get into and get right. adjusted. And he's like, Paul, I can't do it. I can't move. I don't know how to move in this suit. It's not going to work. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And that's the second story where he's like, I realized I did Peter a great disservice. Yeah. He knows that now, 30 years later. So he says. He looks crazy on the sets. I mean, when you watch him directing, a director is a force of nature, which propels a set of circumstances and a group of people forward. Not necessarily necessarily because they know what they're doing, just because they have the ability to say, let's go. We'll figure it out on the way. There's a rhetoric you have to use, but then you have to have a certain amount of understanding. Werner Herzog was talking specifically about the beginning of Aguirre, Wrath of God. He, and he was describing, he's like, you're going to see on this on this glacier, hundreds of people zigzagging. And you have this long shot and you spend 20 minutes watching these hundreds of people. And he's like, and I'm not going to compromise. No compromise. He's like, and so we went up to do some camera tests on that glacier. And I started getting a nosebleed and the camera guy like collapsed. And he's like, okay. So we had to scale it back a little bit. And instead, it's also a very impressive shot coming up a mountain, but there's no snow. There's, you know, maybe a hundred people or whatever, but it's, yes, of course, you have to talk a big game about not compromising, but you have to have enough human understanding to know when to compromise. When to compromise. <laughs> and it seems to me like Paul Verhoeven uh, learned that a little late. Maybe. If at all. Well, Chris, in the words of the great Kenny Rogers, you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. That's really, yeah. I'm going to a card game tonight. I'm going to. That's huh. Kenny Rogers. I think he's having some difficulties right now. I, yes. Wasn't he? Is he hospitalized? Why don't we go to one of our sponsors? We have a set of new sponsors tonight brought to us by our corporate overlord. I mean, corporate uh, supporters. Uh, uh, patrons. OC, patrons is a good one. Yeah. And the first is a wonderful company doing great work, Chris. This is the Family Heart Center. Is it time for that big operation? This may be the most important decision of your life. So come down and talk to one of our qualified surgeons. Here at the Family Heart Center, we feature the complete Jarvik line. Series 7 Sports Heart by Jensen. Yamaha, you pick the heart. Extended warranties, financing. Qualifies for health tax credit. And remember, we care. Thank you, Family Heart Center, for supporting great podcasting. Well, I did, we can go back to the X rating that initially got. Mm -hmm. The scenes that I read that were cut were, like we said, the death of Kenny at, at yeah. 209. Also, the way they shot Murphy's hand off. The other one was the execution of Murphy. Yes. Even what they even put with, in was, yes. was pretty, Well, I saw the, in the future, it looks like the same shot. Yeah. What, what did they take out? They still yeah. show the guy shooting him straight in the head. I think instead of watching it hit him, you cut to Kurtwood Smith a little bit closer, shooting it, and then you cut back to Murphy. Oh, uh, and you see the head fall. falling. Also, I guess in the final scene, as well as the uh, the great Rob Bottine effect of one of the characters, Emil, oh my played God, by Paul McCrane. What else did Paul McCrane ever do? Well, I know he was on uh, ER for a while. Oh, that's and true. And I remember him from uh, an episode of The X-Files where he was really, really good. But he he does have a fantastic presence and he's very memorable in everything he, is. he does. So the, the brilliant scene you're talking about is, what is it that he falls into? Toxic waste or nuclear I waste? Mean, <laughs> it <laughs> literally <laughs> says toxic waste on the outside of the drum. And he's just, the best part is his fingers are melting off. 
which is hilarious to me. And he's going to the other bad guy who's a that guy whose name I got to look up. Played by Ray Wise. Oh, that's Ray Wise. Yeah. And Ray Wise is like, get the hell away from me. And then <laughs> somebody drives through I him. Think- blobular body and then turns into liquid. Like the windshield this is the thing. Like Verhoeven is so good at that stuff. And you know what? I have to admit, I haven't seen Spetters and the early supposedly classic like Dutch Verhoeven films. Right. Apparently they're worthwhile. Yeah. I also want a special shout out to Nancy Allen who plays Lewis. This is a part that came up for some criticism at the time. Criticism was that, and has, I guess, always been with Verhoeven, that he doesn't really have any facility or time for complicated female characters or Mm -hmm. protagonists. The only other women in this movie, I think, are the two coke-snorting accomplices (laughs) of Miguel Ferrer. Yes. Are there any other females in the whole movie? I guess there is. Well, there's a woman who gets molested or is trying to get arrested. The potential rape victim. The potential rape victim. Yes. Where Robocop shoots through her dress into into the guy's crotch, which is, I mean, if that's not a feminist statement, I mean, what the hell is? That wasn't how it was planned to be shot, but when they were rehearsing it, they would lift her up and sort of notice that her legs were opening enough and Mm. uh, thought like, oh, we can make this a little stronger if he gets shot in the dick. Verhoeven liked to cast people against what they were known as, Ronnie Cox being an example, uh, Kurtwood Smith being another example, and prior to this movie, um, Nancy Allen was kind of known for her long, curly hair, She'd famously played Chris in Carrie. That was like her first big breakout role. She was in Dress to Kill, which is a pretty good movie to contemplate watching again. Talk about like kind of over the top, but about something. I wonder if it holds up. You know, De Palma's got a new film now. If he does? Right, weren't we talking about Domino? Isn't that De Palma? Yeah, you mentioned it. I didn't even hear anything about it. I haven't seen a trailer. All the reviews that that I've read just said that it was... Like, just really bad. And it's sort of sad to see somebody who was so good having lost it. But who knows? Maybe he wasn't, because he was always kind of exploitative and a little bit sort of like Verhoeven, playing with being kind of trashy. Yeah, more than playing. It might just be that now looking back, like, maybe it was always just trash. Speaking of De Palma and speaking of Hero of the Pod, great Travolta performance in 1981's Blowout. Oh, <laughs> you're going to say in RoboCop. No. Probably missed oh, Travolta would have been a good RoboCop. Where was he in 87? He's got a prominent jaw. <laughs> I don't know if the voice, put down your weapon, citizen. Travolta in 87 is available. I mean, he's, oh, yeah. he's just coming off perfect, which kind of put the brakes on a little bit until- Pulp Fiction. Well, I mean, Look Who's Talking was a massive hit. That's true. It did resign him to the admittedly gilded ash heap of cinematic history. Yes, but what other movie was such a hit, the sequel came out a year later. That's kind of getting it churned around pretty quickly. But I don't know if Done. that's necessarily a good thing. No, but you're right. Not until Pulp Fiction in 94. I'm just so fascinated by Travolta's career. You've got Grease. You have Saturday Night Fever. We have Welcome Back, Cotter, which is one of the biggest TV series in the country. Urban mm-hmm. Cowboy, which is a great film. Blowout is a great film. Then it went off the rails, man. Once you have a lot of opportunity, it probably becomes a lot harder to make good choices mm-hmm. because now we're suddenly down to kind of like who you are as a person or who you are, who you're on route to becoming as a person. Like if you're Verhoeven and you made RoboCop, then you make Total Recall. What did he make after that? Basic Instinct, then Showgirls. Total Recall, Basic Instinct, huge yeah. box office hits. And like era defining crazy Joe Esterhaus movies too. No, that's a, that's a I good mean, point. Joe Esterhaus. Joe Esterhaus is really responsible for kind of like what happened to the country in the 1990s hmm. by putting on film this Esterhazian version of America that was just so ridiculous and over the top. And a perfect match for director Paul Verhoeven. RoboCop was written by Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner, mm-hmm. and funny enough, there were two screenwriters working concurrently on two different ideas, and then they ended up meeting. I think one was like a 
a robot cop and one about a cop who turned into a robot. <laughs> uh, they were kind of like, you know what, together. Like exactly, yeah. Edward Neumeyer was saying that he came up with the idea partially inspired by Blade Runner. Yeah, he said he asked his friend, what's it about, before they saw it, and he said, it's about a cop hunting robots. And he yeah. thought, hmm, what about robots robot hunting. cops? Yeah. Robot cops in disguise. <laughs> Is that how it goes? The Blade Runner theme? No. Transformer. Is this like proto-trans... Was Transformers a thing before this? I believe so. I think Transformers... Oh. Uh, Transformers like, in the 80s. Is cartoon. Transformers one of those things that's like been in a Japanese comic book since 1962 or something? No, I th- it was definitely an American product, but it was certainly influenced by the same kind of Japanese robot things that they wanted to make Robocop look like. Let's see. Hasbro. There's so much information. Transformers in 1. For the, the franchise began in 1984 with the Transformers toy line. Kind of similar time frame. Oh, yeah. And Robots I remember seeing a lot of. Um, I just like singing that. I that's a great line. A Who wrote of, that? Who wrote the Transformers theme song? You're a genius. It's probably like um, Diane Warren, you know, at the piano in her Malibu mansion. It goes kind of like this. Transformers. I like it, Diane, but it needs to be a little bit more mechanistic and male. Transformers. Uh, Transformers theme song. That's what I'm looking for, Chris. Someone told me they enjoyed when we do this on the pod, so this should be a good episode for <laughs> oh, that really? person. Yeah, they, they're like, I like yeah, enjoy. When, I like when you kind of just go rambling down weird play. I'm like, okay, man. Oh, wait, it doesn't say robots in disguise. Oh, yeah, it does. More than meets the eye. Oh, I didn't know it said the Transformers. The realize. Transformers, more they than meets the eye. They probably don't hit the the that hard. The Transformers. the Transformers. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wait, sort of is this second it. line an actual line in the song? That's a very mouthy line. Autobots wage their battle to destroy the evil forces of the Decepticons. Yeah, I believe so. I have to admit, I haven't been watching the Transformers cartoon uh, for, for a while. You haven't? Okay, well, we're going to play the opening theme now because now, now I, I'm of the opinion, prior to being informed, is that's how I roll. I'm of the opinion that there's no the and the actual performance. Yeah, here's, here's what we're going to listen to and see if it's true. The Transformers, more than meets the eye. Wow. I really had forgotten that there was that the. Some songwriter got away with murder with that ridiculous second line. And (laughs) (laughs) don't worry, I got the. I'll put my best backup singers on it. Wait a minute. It goes Autobots. Wage their battle to destroy the evil forces of the Decepticons. I mean, that's like, you that's can like, tighten that a little. That's opera training. The way that they're able to move those words, like, just make it fit the rhythm. How about like, the Transformers more than meets the eye. Destroy evil forces of Decepticons. No, that's not good either. Yeah. Uh, evil forces. They're the Decepticons. <laughs> Except that's a little better. A little. Do we need Autobots in the song? Well, if you're going to tell you something, if you're going to mention the Decepticons. Autobot means that they're cars and they turn into robots. They're the good ones. The Autobots are the good ones. The Decepticons are the bad ones. Right. Transformers is an umbrella under which lives Decepticons and yes, Autobots. Yes, there are two types okay. of Transformers. Okay. Autobots, they're the good guys. Again, you know, that might just be a little too on the nose, putting uh-huh. that value judgment I mean, Again, I'm just there. the creative, so I'm just throwing yeah. things out here. No, absolutely. And look, while we're tinkering with the time machine so we can go back and and change it, (laughs) we have time to work on the perfect theme. Anyway, John Travolta as RoboCop was great. If only we were in that timeline, (laughs) then who would have been in Pulp Fiction? Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick. 
co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film, Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Peter Weller, what really, I, there's another funny anecdote where the, the producer says they would send this screenplay out and so many people would just turn it down because yeah. of the title. Like, it's a very funny example of a movie that's much better than its title. Edward Newmeyer, I think, yeah. even says like, yeah, I think we kind of always planned on changing it. But, <laughs> you know, like the film itself and like what even Paul Verhoeven thought at first, yes. sounds like it's just a cheapy, exploitative piece of sci-fi crap. It's not going to help Paul Verhoeven's reputation that the only reason he ended up getting it <laughs> was because his wife fished the screenplay out of the garbage where he'd thrown it after reading like three pages. He sat down and read the thing and was like, don't be an idiot. This is actually really good. Yeah. I think he said like he had gone for a swim and while he was swimming. Behind she- every great man, there's a woman actually doing the work <laughs> in Hollywood. That's for sure. Verhoeven is, makes a lot of hilarious analogies about, he sees him as a Jesus parody. Look, man. It, <laughs> I, and well, not a parody. I was I mean, like, <laughs> not a parody. It's, like, it's so hard to tell the difference between <laughs> craziness or self-parody yes. or there's definitely no overt symbolism of it. There's no part where with doves yeah, flying no or- T formation. Exactly. Yeah. So there's nothing like that. So, oh, it's death. It's resurrection. That's what I mean. That The fact that it was in his mind, yeah. but he had the sense to not make it that overt makes me buy it. When you have a crazy metaphor sort of running in the background- <laughs> uh, that can kind of infuse something. This is such a highly regarded movie, I think, mm-hmm. because it works on every level. Sure. I think rather like uh, like Heather's does. And I think when yeah. we talked about it, then you can mm-hmm. watch it without getting the satire. Right. As with this, like sure. you can just enjoy it. You as can an just be there for movie. the act. Well, they called it fascism for liberals. Yes. It's such a liberal agenda, but it's got wall-to-wall insane gun violence and yes. gore, if that's what you're after. Well, let's play another scene here from... <laughs> This is the birth of RoboCop in the lab, which again is one of the great, like making fun of Paul Verhoeven a little bit here, but technically very good uh, director. Yes. He's on. What's the story? We were able to save the left arm. What? I thought we agreed on total body prosthesis. Now lose the arm, okay? Jesus, Morton. Can can you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. We're going to blank his memory anyway. Well, I think we should lose the arm. What, What do you think, Johnson? Well, he signed the release forms and he joined the force. He's legally dead. We can do pretty much what we want to. Lose the arm. Shut him down. Prep him for surgery. There you have it. That is so fantastic. It's great. This seeing through Robocop's point of view, you have a few scenes like that and you know that time passes. And then I think the ultimate one where they reveal, it starts it with a see-through translucent tarp over it, changing the perspective yet again. 
it is so effective. And that, this is one of those things that a producer might've been like, I'm sorry, so you're doing what now? Yeah. <laughs> like we're seeing, and, it, and it's such a fantastic effect. We're looking up from the perspective of Robocop being on like a slab. The camera is pointing upwards and all the faces are looming over him. Yeah. And all of these scenes where they're drilling things, putting screens into him, you hear there's what there's a scene where they put four screws into his head. In a weird way, even though Robocop doesn't say or do anything, it humanizes him because you get the sense of these things are being done to someone that we remember and know. It's such a brilliant way to do that, to remove the humanity, but insert the humanity through the way we're filming it. I mean, you know, age old story of machine develops feelings and emotions. That's always our sci-fi thing. Right. Yeah. Going all the way back to Philip K. Dick. If you give them AI, eventually they're going to start to have emotions and get messy and complicated. And sometimes mm -hmm. that wins out and sometimes it's an eternal battle. Not only does the technology gain human characteristics, we lose some. In Flesh and Steel, they even make an illusion. When he's talking about how much of Fritz Lang's Metropolis was kind yes. of in the background for him, making Robocop a male version of the robot in that, not just the look, but the place that it has in society. Mm -hmm. But even within that movie, that's already having the thing of the people people becoming dehumanized by technology, which promises to make their life better yeah. and take care of some of their physical needs. And yet people don't realize that that's also a way to uh, drive them into a kind of servitude. And the sort of servitude elements of this film and labor relations as a plot point, and that is driving the narrative, is pretty cool. Now, Ray Wise, this guy has, talk about working actor. Yeah. This might be the longest, wait, how is this possible? 1951? That can't be. Is that his first well, credit or is... His, his first credit is 1951. The next one's 1965. That's where his career really starts. Yeah. God, he's got such a great look. I mean, it's tons of kind TV. Of, that kind of handsomeness, but is a little bit exaggerated to make him like a caricature of yes. a smiling avuncular dad. I thought he was in... Um, I know this will really disappoint you, Chris. I forgot to prepare the Columbo Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. So there's no point in going on. I mean, we can do it on the fly. At least two people told me this. Super listener Ben, super listener Rick told me they love when you guys are like, it feels real and in the moment. Uh -huh. like, okay, I'll stop doing anything. Yeah, you like um, the crap, we'll keep the crap. But Ray Wise, I mean, I certainly remember him from, from Twin Peaks where he does have sure. most of the characters in that get these sort of bravura performances. But yeah. I think the two Palmer parents like are just fantastic. And so I love him. Well, we have to have a word from our corporate master, I mean, uh, sponsors. What are they called again? OCP? I forget. OCP. OCP, right. I'm terrible. I'm definitely going to be replaced by a robot <laughs> so before the next one comes. This is from OCP's line of family board games. Red alert. Red alert. Red alert. You crossed my line of death. You haven't dismantled your MX stockpile. Pakistan is threatening my border. That's it, Buster. No more military aid. <laughs> Nuke them. Get them before they get you. Another quality home game from Butler Brothers. Chris, I don't know about you. I love playing Butler Brothers games with my family. Nothing brings the family together. Like nuclear holocaust. Exactly. If you survive. Even if you don't. At least y'all go out together. This segment also brought to you by Chernobyl Pet Adoption. Too soon. Is it? Have you watched Chernobyl? I haven't. I, everyone, yeah, it's, it's the, amazing. It's amazing. You haven't seen it. It's amazing. Oh, you got to watch it. So then I asked someone the other day, I'm all aboard for like a real life, true kind of like political moment by moment stopwatch yeah, yeah, yeah. thriller about like an actual nuclear event. Totally on board for that. I was like, but tell me one thing. 
Do the Russians speak Russian and have subtitles, or are they British actors speaking with English accents? And I was told they're British actors speaking with English accents, and I'm out. Fair enough. Why? I, I can't I mean, accept that. I mean, it's a Hollywood production. I can't, I I mean, can't it, accept that. Fair, fair. There's no need to do that. You're telling me there's no actors in Russia? I do know of at least three. So hire them and put some movies. fucking subtitles on the goddamn thing. I don't know. It's probably more expensive. Oh, give me a I don't break. know where it's they It's less expensive. It. Have you been to Russia? Dudes are willing to work in your movie for a slice of rotting sausage and half a bottle of vodka. Yeah, but you, know, you got to pay to get in there. You think Putin's just letting any Hollywood thing come in? And also, and this was going to be my, I don't know, it would be a rant or a rave, but there's already a Russian corrective. Now I'm interested. About how it was CIA sabotage that caused it. Uh, is that true? <laughs> that it was a CIA sabotage? No, no. Is it true that they're filming that Corrective. I mean, I read it on the Daily Mail, so who knows? But yes, I get the impression that, <laughs> well, it's, that, that it's true. That's always a very good source for news. No, but source. to be serious about my point, as a fan of geopolitical thrillers, as a fan of espionage books and films, the good ones always go there by casting actors of the appropriate ethnicity and subtitling the dialogue. And largely the bad ones opt for, eh, it doesn't matter. So mm -hmm. Jared Harris is the Chernobyl plant manager. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe it's because I have a theater background, but you, you're you creating the world around it. And if you introduce- Who? And you, Who's you? You, whoever's making it. Yeah. The makers of it. And so if you- So make it, it properly. <laughs> no. Eh? Eh? Yes. Eh? Yes. Eh. Eh? What I am saying is that when you are creating the world and you are setting the rules, if you're setting the rules that these are the people who are speaking it, it doesn't necessarily no, no, no. that are speaking. But that's fine if you're creating a work of fiction. But this is you're telling the story of actual people's lives, actual mm -hmm. people who died in a tragedy. Don't you owe it to them to portray them with people that possess even one iota of their soul and their sensibilities by using actors from their own background. A Russian actor is going to embody this thing that occurred in their nation, which was far ranging. You're not creating a world, you're telling the story of a world that exists with real people in it. And I'm just saying that it's particularly in geopolitics and espionage, I find those films work better when the actors are speaking their native language and subtitle. And I mm -hmm. would defend that. I can't, I don't think you can cite an example where it's better this way than that. It's like when you have English actors playing, uh, I don't know. Romans? Americans. Like Tim Roth in Reservoir Dogs didn't bother me. Did you have an accent in that? Yeah, he, he had accent. sort of a bad American accent. It was it pretty slipped. good. Was I good. mean, it's you know, I didn't notice it yeah, slipping until seeing me. it like a few that times. That doesn't bother me. That doesn't bother me. You know, I think what you're saying is certainly true if it were something about, let's say, the Americans and the Russians. But if you're creating the whole world and this is sort of the default, the setting, I don't see it as a problem. And I guess I understand because I also think that for a filmmaker who wants to like, here is this story that speaks to me here. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And again, what fascin part of what fascinated me about it was the fact that it was Craig Mazin who was driving this, somebody mm -hmm. who's well, mostly well-known for making fun of Ted Cruz because mm -hmm. <laughs> he's got his, and yeah. for making the Hangover movies. Yeah. So I am very surprised to hear that he wanted to do this. Right. I have heard that it really does go deeply into the emotions. And I just, I guess as a performer and as a somebody who likes to create stuff, the idea that there is some thing about the soul that another person can't from another country by, that, they, that they can't do. Oh, no, no. I, I again, just, again, again, excuse at, me, at excuse me. Do not paint me with like the the brush of oh you're you're basically saying like people of different races can't play different no, no, roles I, that that is not my point at all my point is is not that someone who's english can't play this role obviously he can and he's one of the greatest actors working that is not my point at all my point is when you're and and again i i equate this to like for some reason geopolitical movies espionage movies i feel that when you're going to pluck a 
plop us down as viewers into the world, it's so much more effective to me as a viewer to have actors speaking the language they would be speaking when the crisis is happening. Now, I guess if this is only set in Chernobyl, you're talking about a Russian language show, which you're right, commerce-wise, probably is a tougher sell, but I don't find it a tougher sell to watch it in subtitles. I'm sure you watch plenty of subtitled yeah. films and enjoy them. So similarly, why not this? That's all my point is, is like, yes, you can do it. Anyone can do anything. That's not my point. My point is, I think it would be more effective if you had Russian actors or actors speaking Russian. Jared Harris could speak Russian for all I care. Mm -hmm. He's an actor. Learn it phonetically. That's what you guys do. Have an earpiece and someone speaks. All of that is to say, I haven't seen Chernobyl, (laughs) but I've taken a set against it, which I understand. And back to RoboCop. Oh, oh, yes. John Travolta is RoboCop. John Davidson, I think one of the producers who's very funny in the making of featurette. He says, quote, working on RoboCop was like being the victim of a violent crime. You just try to blank it out of your mind and memory. I swore I'd never make another picture. He said everyone hated everyone because it was so difficult. Obviously, Verhoeven seems like a mad genius whose energy must be exhausting. It's exhausting just watching him in the featurette. I do want to play a little clip from Showgirls. I'm not going to play one of the more titillating clips, but one that sort of demonstrates the crappiness, the crassness, the cruelty, basically the Esterhaz uvia. Okay, ladies. I'm Tony Moss. I produce this show. Some of you probably heard that I'm a prick. I am a prick. I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. Let me take a look at you. Spread out. Spread out. Jesus Christ. Marty, take a look at these tits. What are these, watermelons? This is a stage, babe. It's not a patch. See ya. I've seen you before. Yes, Mr. Moss, I auditioned for you in January. You told me to get my nose fixed. Nose looks good. Thank you, Mr. Moss. Nice smile, too. Thank you, Mr. Moss. You know what, though? Your ears are sticking out. They are. Come back and see me when you get them fixed. See ya. What kind of classes have you had? Ice skating classes, Mr. Moss. Ballet classes, technique classes, stretch classes, jazz classes, jazz technique classes. This show is called Goddess. It ain't called classes. See ya. What kind of classes have you had? I haven't had classes. Then what are you doing here? I'm watching you be a prick. (sighs) Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's showbiz, Chris. Yeah. Every audition room you've ever been in, just the same, right? Uh, yeah, not just the audition room. You can't defend it as an over-the-top satire like, not over satire the top enough, of, no. of show business or Las Vegas. This is why I have so much respect for Don Siegel in his comments about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It'd be very, very easy after that 1956 version became such a widely esteemed science fiction classic and had all of this sociopolitical stuff put on top of it if this guy embraced that and said, yeah, that's what I was doing all along. But instead... All those years later, he's still like, no, Showgirls becomes such an epic catastrophe and a collapsing of so many things that, of course, the take is, oh, people didn't get the satire I was going for. Who knows what's going on in the person's mind? But it also seems like if you want to talk about over-the-topness, this is not 
that over the top. Well, also, I mean, I could have played you the pool sex scene. An over the top sex scene does not satire make unless yeah. you're satirizing the sex. Like just saying like, boy, there's so much excess. If this is what it's about, if it's about somebody who's willing to do anything to get ahead in some strangely small world. Yes. Like being a Vegas showgirl, I'm yeah. sure it pays a comfortable middle-class living. But you can't name one <laughs> ever. Apparently also in Showgirls, Charlize Theron really wanted the part and was not deemed well-known enough or experienced enough to take the part. And Verhoeven does say she should really thank, thank Elizabeth you. Berkeley because you can't come back from that. Yeah. Like, and she never did. Yeah, no Pulp Fiction for her. Just because it's good, Chris, I have to do it. I have to play one more Showgirls clip. Just because, you know, there's movies that are so bad, they're good. There's movies that are so offensive, they're like watching cars crash. And then there's whatever this is. This is a dialogue scene between Nomi's former dance partner and Nomi. That's her name, Nomi, like to know me. Oh, know I thought I, it was like, no, me. This is the obligatory, you got more talent in your left nipple than I've got in my whole body scene. Oh, good. Hey. Oh, wait a minute. Listen. Just listen. You got more natural talent when you dance than anybody I've ever seen. Look, I've seen a lot of dancers. I studied in New York. Alvin Ailey. You burn when you dance. Yeah, you said I couldn't. Oh, you gotta hold some of it in. You got some shit to learn dancing ain't fucking. What's that? More wisdom? I know that. No, you don't. You dance like when you fucked that guy last night. What guy? That guy with the chick. You took him in the back. I didn't fuck him. <laughs> yeah, you did. You fucked him and her. Are you following me around? I didn't fuck anybody. But I was I just saw you. Man, everybody got AIDS and shit. You know, what is it that you think you do? You fuck them without fucking them. That's what you do. Well, it ain't right. You got too much talent for it to be right. Get out of here! How many things are wrong with that one scene? Wow. Yeah, I mean, let's throw dirt on Alvin Ailey in a complete gratuitous drive-by that has <laughs> nothing like, to do with anything, it's okay? Like, it's like, as if anybody's like, I said in New York. Oh, that's not good enough for you? <laughs> Alvin Ailey. A lot of people training in New York. That doesn't equate I, good. Yeah. But it's also like, do you really think that the people going to see this movie are like, I don't know, I don't believe it. Oh, Alvin Ailey. The AIDS crisis. I mean, hey, let's just throw that in there too for whatever the hell this is yeah. in 1995. That's what we're dealing with. This is what Verhoeven went to. Because he could. And probably sounded like fun to go party in Vegas for a while. You think that's part of it? I can't imagine that it's not, you know? It's I mean, so hard to tell the difference between motives when it is happening. You know what I mean? Like, this is not to excuse Paul Verhoeven or anything like that. Like, But it's also the thing of, like, you look back and, like, who knows if he's lying to himself or if that's the story he's been telling himself for so long to justify wanting probably. to go and party with Joe Esterhaus, which, you know, Ugh. in prime Joe Esterhaus. Sure. Oh, you know, you're going to be having fun. He's at his most Esterhaus. Yeah, I mean, I'm of an age where the idea of going to Las Vegas for a three-month film shoot would be, that would be like getting my fingers cut off one by one with a pair of garden shears. I'd rather go home, sit in my chair, read my reading pile, and be asleep by 9.30. Uh, well, that's great. So I couldn't Look, make I mean, Showgirls. <laughs> Showgirls could, 2, though. Which, there was a Showgirls. Well, I don't think it got made, did it? I mean, it, it's oh, listed it in his credits. Verhoeven was supposed to do a sequel that he was going to call Bimbos. This is called Showgirls 2 Pennies from Heaven. This is from 2011. Wow. This one's actually about a stripper as opposed to a showgirl. This came out? Yeah. I mean, again, it's listed in Showgirls IMDb. Showgirls 2, yeah. 
Pennies from Heaven official trailer. Should, I mean, should we do this? I guess we have to. Oh, come on. We're, we're this far in. We've already left poor- And this is Esterhaus? Peter, uh, Did he direct it? I mean, it? he's involved in- Let's see what his exact involvement is. <laughs> Characters, mm. uncredited. Oh. So where are you going? Hollywood. Hollywood, huh? I'm gonna be a star. A star? Fucker? <laughs> You gotta take dance classes. Alvin Ailey, Joffrey, Juilliard. It's ballet technique. You gotta have that if you wanna be a dancer. Bitch, you stole my customer. Can you there a cigarette for an old showgirl? Cigarette. Ain't no happy ending, man, when you're chasing that dream. Ain't no pot of gold at the end of that stupid ass rainbow. Okay, this is going on for another two minutes, so I'm just going <laughs> to stop it we've now. Got, we've got wow, I'm fascinated. Wait a minute. I am too. Okay, that's a porn movie, right? This is listed in IMDb. Let's see if it's that. I mean- What is the origin of that? I mean, it looks like the character, she's like, hey, Joe. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, bucks. it says it's a parody sequel. Ah. Stars, written, produced, edited, directed by Rena Riffel, who- produces early kickstarter campaign numerous cast members it says parody but i don't know i'm shocked i mean i shouldn't be but i am you gotta admire the hustle <laughs> good for you rena all right anything else on showgirls you want to cover chris uh again we're not talking about showgirls i mean <laughs> <laughs> robocop do we give full credit to everyone that we need to give credit to do we cover enough peter weller uh, we didn't talk about moni yakim the choreographer who worked as his uh great mime coach yes and, you know, good for, I don't know too much. From about Juilliard. Peter. From Juilliard. Yeah. Uh, I don't know too much about Peter Weller's personality, but I did read an anecdote. <laughs> so the, one, the fact that he was like, all right, man, I'm going to get a freaking mime coach because I know that this is going to be, a, the physicality is going to be a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's fantastic. And the fact that he raised a stink about the suit arriving three weeks late and on the first day, like that is well. I mean, it's reasonable for him to be like, I, yeah. had, I had no chance oh, yeah. to. I'm, I'm agreeing. Oh, I, thought you were, I thought you were saying he was an asshole for that. No, no, no. I think, I, you know, but I get the sense that he's a guy who does take his job yeah. seriously. Yes. He's trying and, and that there's an artist in there. And, yes. blah, blah, blah. and yet at the same time, I read an anecdote that was saying that he did ask everybody to only refer to him as Robo or Murphy. Sure. Okay. Uh, staying in character. Days, Got it. Staying in character. <laughs> Look, it's very tiring to go in and out of character. But I guess he also gave that up. After a couple days, which- <laughs> Yeah, forget that whole thing. Sort of. And again, you know, again, I don't mean this to take anything away from him. They might be, you know, he's trying to figure out. He's like, maybe, maybe this will help. Maybe after a couple of days of sweating. He's, he was trying anything. And yeah, and if the shoot was that hellish, maybe after a while, I was like, you know what? Staying in character is not as important as just trying to make it through to the end of the day. Yeah. But he does give a wonderful performance. And I haven't seen too many other things that he has done, but I loved Naked Lunch, which came mm -hmm. up when we were doing Jaws. Yeah. That was such a strange movie. And Peter Weller's version of William Burroughs was uh, was fantastic. So. He's done a lot of stints on, on some very popular TV series right. of late. You know, 24, Dexter, uh, Sons of Anarchy, uh, The Last Ship, which I always thought was a hilarious series of spots on NBC. It was sort of like, what is this, some sort of ghost ship? Some sort of like we're on a ship somewhere with it's lost, but, it's, but at, <laughs> on sea. What what was the premise? That's no, the last one. I think it was like after a nuclear war or something. This ship, uh, this naval vessel, like couldn't go anywhere because they're like, well, <laughs> everywhere else is sort what? of irradiated, so we're kind of alone. So we're just on a ship. So yeah. here's the the crew of a naval destroyer is forced to confront the reality of a new existence when a pandemic kills off most of the Earth's ah, population. 
a pandemic that kills off most of the Earth's human population, I view as a boon, not some sort of dystopian nightmare. Well, listen, you weren't on The Last Ship. True. Wasn't Jason Begay on The Last Ship? It seems like a Jason Begay. Like, no, he, he should have been, been on that. Because he was on Chicago PD. Oh, you're right. It was Eric Dane. Yeah, who's portraying right. the role of Jason Begay. The, po- <laughs> <laughs> the Peter Weller head turns and then the body turns in the RoboCop suit is is a brilliant yeah. movement choice. And his movement in the suit is really good. And I think very difficult to have pulled off given what we know about how yeah. hard the shoot was. This is another movie that has a scene where I was like, oh my God, why didn't they do this? And I'm going to posit to you, Chris, that it would have been so much better and one of the most iconic scenes in the movie had they done the following. So in this movie, there's a scene where he goes back to his home, which is long abandoned and and another brilliant satirical touch instead of an actual realtor showing the home. He opens the front door. There's a computer on a stand that says, greetings, home buyer. Welcome to your new home. Anyway, he's walking around and this is when he starts having memory flashbacks Mm -hmm. and he starts seeing little snippets of his wife and kid who we saw when he was Murphy. When he's Murphy, he's doing the little gun twirling thing. And Nancy Allen says, what is that? And he goes, oh, my kid's a big fan of this show, TJ Laser," And he does that. So I do that for him. It's a cute little affectation that he does that connects him to his son. Well, in that scene where he goes and he's having the actual memory of his kid watching Laser Cops and saying, can you do that, dad? He should have done it right there in the, in the room by himself, slowly and mournfully done the gun trick mm-hmm. and put it back into his leg. I thought that would have been such an affecting moment. Yeah. Again, have heart installed by Family Heart no, Center, no. Chris. <laughs> I'm giving it the thought that it deserves. Yeah, it would have. Yeah, what else? I'm yeah. trying to think. Like, would it have been a sad moment? No. It would have been like, oh, he wants to be connected to this yeah. family. He misses them. Every other time he does the gun thing, it's either done for comic effect because he's a badass when he's RoboCop. Yeah, yeah. But this would have been a time to do it to be connected to the emerging human memory. And it would have connected the mech with the human in an effective way. And they didn't do it. No. So well, for that... Forget it. You're dead (laughs) to me, RoboCop. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you. They had a scene originally in the screenplay where he does track down the wife and see. Yeah, I didn't know why they didn't do that. Well, I kind of felt like they should have had that. This scene that you're referring to, actually, in my mind, remembered that that happened in the movie. Yeah, he finds his family. There's like a touching scene between him and his wife and kid, but because when he with them, because there's the memory half robot. Well, they ended up doing. They cut it. I guess I don't remember exactly why they cut it, except that maybe they thought it was just sort of a little bit too much. But they ended up repurposing that scene, or at least the idea comes back in. RoboCop 2. Uh, and actually, that was one of the parts that- Maybe that's what I'm remembering it from. Who knows? Because I, I vividly had this memory of that thing, which you would have in a screenplay, which is like, not man enough to be with them as father and husband, not robot enough to just be unpulled to the family. Who knows? Maybe they, because they were kind of doing it on the fly and wanted to talk a little bit more about the suit and the difficulties, not only for him as a performer, but there are a lot of things that they couldn't do. Yeah. And both the leg holster, as well as I forget which other part, were separate things. Like work- so, Rounds, it yeah. was not easy, as easy to do. So there might have been a technical reason why yeah. they didn't do something like that. Yeah, that's true. One of the things that I was reading was saying that because the suit so bulky, he couldn't wear it and sit in the car. Mm. Did he have a lean board? <laughs> he didn't have a lean board, <laughs> but he would sit in the top half in his underwear uh, for any time they were filming him in the car. And anytime you see him getting out of the car, they do a close-up of the yeah. foot coming down. Conk. Again, working around those things. 
Yeah, so funny. And then, you know, we mentioned that Rob Bottin did the thing. Yes. And we talked about the argument that he had with the cinematographer about how to light it, how much you should or shouldn't see the monster. There was a similar thing in this, yes. specifically when he takes the head part off yeah. of Robocop. It was very interesting to read the description because I do think the way they did it worked out by oh, having brilliant. it more lit and I think showing it up close. I think it's one of the more iconic filmic sci-fi images is the half man, half robot head. You see some wiring and stuff in the background and you see how expressive Peter Weller's eyes are. And again, I'm not going to pretend that he's Daniel Day-Lewis, but no, he brings a, good, a lot of great humanity. Actor. He does, he does he's an a great excellent actor. job. That image, when he first takes it off and he says to uh, Nancy Allen, you may not like what you see, but he's the one who's looking in the hand mirror. Yeah. Uh, it's very affecting. Yeah, it's funny, Rob Bottin thing from the thing was, of course, the cinematographer said, Rob Bottin's whole thing is like he wants to build the most meticulously horrifying <laughs> creature and then not have the viewer be able to see it because he's so afraid that it's going to look boogity. Yeah. So that doesn't really apply to a mech suit, I don't think. I saw the cinematographer in this talk about how really one of the things they spent the most time with once they got it on his body, that it had sort of a matte finish at first, and then that didn't really work. And then they ended up with a more polished surface so that when he walks through spaces, he's reflecting what's around. Yeah. And you can see that through the movie. Yes. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Let's do alternative casting. Put that one back. So, talk about on the nose. Rutger Hauer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember why he didn't do it. I think with both Rutger Hauer and Michael Ironside, and then also some others, but with those two specifically, I read it was to do with their physical build. Right, they knew they too wanted big. somebody very slender yeah. because the suit, suit was going to be big, so yeah. bulky. Right. That's all I had for alternative casting. Well, and you never know how serious some of these things are, but it was funny enough. So Tom Barringer to uh, be, at some point to be Robocop. Wow. Which I think would have been... I could have seen that. I could have seen it. In some ways, it would have been much less of a soulful Murphy, more of a... <laughs> oh, what? Berenger's all soul, man. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's, I don't mean to say that there's not he's some. He's a heartbroken, grizzled veteran in but Platoon. He's, but a, he's grizzled. Sort of more yeah. furrowed brow kind of guy yeah. than Peter Weller's kind of open face, big, wet eyes. Yes. Uh, Sylvester Stallone was considered <laughs> at some point, though, again, that might have just been... Armand Asante actually Armand did read... <laughs> Go oh God, has the film forum ever done an Armand Asante Appreciation <laughs> Festival? Or is that just too, they wouldn't do that. Uh, I think they'd Talk do, about they, over the top. They just don't have enough capacity, you know, for all of the people that would come to see his portrayal of Gotti, which I'm sure was much better. It was, I saw that. I know. It's actually very good. I know. Well, not good. We're going to settle all of it right now. Bring him over here. Armand, he never met a he never met a scene he couldn't go he over could, the top he of. He couldn't do. Uh, Lance Henriksen, at apparently at one point, I guess Peter Weller either quit or was fired, and I think this had to do with the arguments about the suit. Yeah. And so they were going to offer it to Lance Henriksen. I could see that. I don't know if it's because Peter Weller came back or if Lance Henriksen demurred and then they went back to Weller, but that also didn't uh, mm. didn't work out. And when reading that, they of course mentioned the fact that Lance Henriksen had been considered for the Terminator. Yes, which came out. You know. Hey, Hollywood's a cruel mistress. She giveth and mostly she taketh away. For the role of Lewis, 
Yes. Did you read about Stephanie Zimbalist? Yes, was cast in the film. Yeah. And, and she was on- Remington Steel. Remington Steel, right. And so she had to drop out <laughs> to go back to it because they added one last new Talk season. Talk about a bum deal. Well, and I remember the same Although, time. Although, how, how many seasons was- Remington Steel was, probably took care of the bills for oh, quite I, a long time. I was going to say, I'm sure she's- It was probably fine. on for 10 years, I'm going to say. It passed the magic five that you kind of need- Five seasons. To never have to work again. That's a pretty good living. Yeah. And also Pierce Brosnan couldn't be James Bond because of Remington Steel. Yes. But remember that. Five years of employment. And then look, a few years later, I'm sure he was a better like he probably would have looked a little young for Bond. Yeah, in uh, eighty five or eighty two or eighty three. He's probably yeah, very young. And then I did see a couple things about Dick Jones. Yeah. Specifically that Stephen Burkoff, he had auditioned for Dick Jones, which I think would have been fun just because he mm-hmm. can be very over the top in yeah. an Armand DeSante sort of way. And that Kurtwood Smith auditioned for Dick Jones. They had this whole anecdote about how wanting to go against type and even asking him to wear glasses mm-hmm. to uh, evoke Himmler, which yes. is something they didn't uh, tell they, him until after. That's where they got the wire glasses. And he said, from. like, I'm glad they didn't tell me about it. And did you hear the story that Kurtwood Smith was actually injured on the set? There was an explosion that he was too close to, and they gave him 400 no. bucks for stunt pay? Wow, 400 and, bucks. So that he was, wait a minute, you fucked up this explosion, <laughs> and you know, obviously he wasn't hurt too much, but hurt enough, and he's like, and you're just going to give me 400 bucks and yeah. walk away, that's it? And Ray Wise said that once he heard that, he started moving closer and closer to- He wanted 400 Yeah, bucks. like yeah, <laughs> I could use the extra cash. Hey, 400 bucks is 400 bucks. And then there were also quite a few directors who were considered. Uh, David Cronenberg was one. Mm. Alex Cox. Yeah. Who, I guess that's Repo Man and yep. Straight to Hell. And also Sid and Nancy, I believe. And Sid and Nancy, right. Jonathan Kaplan, whose work I don't know, though I guess he- Oh, he's another sci-fi Project guy, isn't he? X. And oh, I think that's he also did the, the guy who did- Oh, really? Yeah, with Jodie Foster. Did a lot of ER. Kenneth Johnson, the guy who created V as well as some other sci-fi properties, was offered it but wanted to change the script to make it a little less, in quotes, mean-spirited, ugly, and ultra-violent. To make it less that way? To make it less that way. And then, like you said, even Verhoeven wasn't going to bother until his wife saved his ass. Chris, the corporate chip in my brain just told me that we have to run our third and final commercial spot. This one from OCP's auto brand the new 6000 SUX. It's back. Big is back, because bigger is better. 6000 SUX, an American tradition. The visual joke on the bottom is great. 8.5 8.5 miles per gallon. <laughs> and the guy pointing also, with the glasses, that's the that's Rob Tippett, I think, who did the oh, stop is that motion. Right? Yeah. 6,000 sucks. That's the thing that is spelled out there. It's brilliant. Which obviously it doesn't. And it's he, just a you know, sort of an unfortunate. Uh, it looks like the Chrysler K car. That's the big shot they were taking at Detroit, even though it was filmed in Dallas. Right. Uh, because Detroit, sorry, Detroit, I'd hate to do this, but this is the truth, didn't have any modern looking buildings been a long way back for the D-Town, but it's there now. I know a lot of people swear by Detroit right now. Yeah. They love it. Another thing that has come true from this in uh, Robocop 2, yeah. Detroit filing bankruptcy, uh, which is something that mm. uh, has actually- Do they build the Dream City in 2? Uh, like I said, I didn't get Who's to the in charge end? of the company in 2? Oh, so it's still Dan O- Dan O'Hurley? Dan O'Hurley. He's, he's still he's, in charge? Yeah, he does it. Oh, wow. As well as the guy with Miguel Ferrer, Johnson- 
That guy is great. He has a hilarious role in this. Yes. Almost akin to the two duct repairmen in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> like in every scene, he's sort of hilariously not saying anything, but just looking bemused. Uh, and, and that's how he survives, kind yeah. of. Yeah, he kind of goes along to get along. Oh, that actually reminds me of... Uh, so this... what, he's like the number two in RoboCop 2? Yes. Dan Hurley is great in this. I just saw Halloween 3 season of The Witch recently. Which he plays also like an evil corporate, a yeah. more evil corporate overlord in that. All TV, I guess he never really was a film guy. I'm looking at his IMDb page and I'm seeing some tantalizing signs that maybe he's going to end up in the Columbo cinematic universe because I see that he did Barnaby Jones, which is always a, <laughs> that's only one step away. So I'm hopeful that as I scroll through here, oh, I see Ironside. Hmm. Nope. Um, Damn. Another thing about Miguel Ferrer. How about a RoboCop Columbo mashup? I know there have been comic books uh, with Terminator versus RoboCop. So yeah, but what about I'm RoboCop sure v. Columbo? That's what I'm saying. Like, Oh, uh, just one more jump. question. No more questions. Yeah, see? It writes itself. Want to do a collab? <laughs> one last thing that I wanted to say about Miguel Ferrer, who, of course, awesome. is awesome in everything. So good. So this was from the, <laughs> the IMDb trivia. The character Bob Morton was originally conceived as a stereotypical corporate executive, arrogant, unpleasant, and unlikable. However, when Miguel Ferrer signed on and gave his performance as an amiable and charismatic individual, first of all, what? <laughs> uh, Edgar Neumeyer and Paul Verhoeven realized that the audience would likely start sympathizing with the character, and Bob Morton was rewritten to become the more pleasant individual that he is in the movie. That's kind of like Frank's description of Jaws that he found from the uh, hipster cinema. Yeah. That has, bears no, no bearing to... whatsoever to the actual story. And uh, you mentioned the uh, the two prostitutes. Yes. First of all, for a 14-year-old you know, kid or whenever, when I first saw this, that yeah. scene you, blew you my were mind. Like, I was like, one day I want to snort coke off a of hooker's tits. Not two of them at once. But what's funny is I also remember reading the Marvel Comics adaptation of the movie, and that scene works a little bit differently. <laughs> Instead of Kurtwood coming in and saying, bitches leave. Bitches leave. He comes in and he's like, ladies, if you would leave us alone for a moment. Are they just sitting there like having wine instead of snorting cocaine? I, they definitely you can't don't snort coke cocaine. in Marvel Comics, can you? Probably. Well, and I don't know. Back then, I mean, you probably could in the offices, but I'm just saying in the comics themselves. <laughs> could had to. No, I think it might have been more like, but they were definitely maybe like kissing and like a uh, glass of wine in front of them. But that's it. Um, I don't have any headlines. I don't have any rants and raves. I just have Latchkey TV. Great. Hello. All right. Well, as I said, Chris, uh, RoboCop came out in uh, September of 1987. I have here a. TV Guide, Broadcasting Cable Listings from October 1987. On the cover here, we have all white people. We have Michael J. Fox, the aforementioned. Yes. We have Bob Newhart. Oh, the man. uber white guy of all time. Hilarious. Comedy legend. Comedy legend. And Growing Pains with Creepy Christian, Kirk, whatever his name is. Cameron. And Alan Thicke. R.I.P. Whoever, whoever that is. Wait. Is that the wife? Yeah. Isn't that Meredith Baxter Bernie? No, not on Growing Pains. Who's Meredith Baxter? Wait, what was I don't think isn't dead, is he? Growing Pains. Yeah, he died in uh, 2016. Oh, I didn't know that. On his IMDb page, does it list World's Dumbest? Because uh, he was a recurring cast member on our show, World's Dumbest, which we produced for True TV for 16 seasons. And Alan Thicke was a very welcome, hilarious guest player yes. 
um, who was such a privilege to work with and the easiest, nicest guy you will ever encounter. Uh, well, you won't encounter him now, <laughs> but he was truly the nicest person who p- answered his own phone and made all his own arrangements. And I had that voice and was, you could talk to him on the phone like mm-hmm. this. Hi, Alan Thick. I just wanted to thank you for the day's work. I mean, here's a guy who's done like more things than anyone ever could. Let's face it. Appearing on our show was probably not the highlight of his acting career, yeah. but he had a hell of a time doing it. And he was fun. Yeah. And he, he like would literally call to thank us for booking him to do these funny send ups of himself. <laughs> um, I wish I had some of them. I know we did him as the uh, driving school instructor. I should have pulled these up had I known. Does he live in New York? Does he live in Hollywood? Um, I assume he lived in Hollywood, if not Canada at the time. Right. That, well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, if, if it was a bigger schlep or if it was somewhere that, you know, uh, you already had facilities. Let's see. This is the, this is his, ep- there, look, here it is. World's Dumbest Drivers 12. Uh, it's, this is some, let's see if it's loading. Hey, our whole episode is up on YouTube. That's not cool. True TV apps. Oh, it's uploaded by the network. Never mind. <laughs> all right. All, all right. right. Okay, fine. Well, I can't. <laughs> I'll pl- let it pass. It's time. on there, but I can't get it. I can't get the clip to load, and no one really, really needs to hear that. But just to say, sorry that I don't think died. Yes. And I should have sent flowers. So uh, 1987 is the year I graduated high school. So in October of 1987, I'm free, man. I can watch whatever <laughs> I want, whenever I want. I'm actually living on my own at this point. I have an apartment with two of my friends. I'm taking a year off between high school and college, and I'm working and living and having a real good time. Now, I don't think we had a TV, but... Who needs it? If we did, I would start watching around 4 p.m. The Drama Judge, which I never heard of. Logline? What's interesting is that a lot of the loglines of the shows I'm going to mention here have to do with, like, computers in our lives. So on Judge, which is apparently a drama, a teenage computer whiz is accused of interfering with a credit check company's records. Early hacking stories. Huh. Computers that only been around like 15 minutes and already... Causing trouble. Causing trouble. I'd probably flip over. We mentioned it before. 321 Contact is on, even though I'm high school graduate. Yeah, okay. I still like to watch some children's programming, right? <laughs> Sue me. nothing wrong with that. This one's about earthquake preparedness. Sure, they're less common on yes. the East Coast, but not unheard of. On 4.30, Three's company gets into the computer world. Jack surreptitiously enlists the aid of a computer dating service. Surreptitiously, like there's a shame attached to it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, the idea of doing dating, like that was the butt of jokes up into the 2000s. There you go. Uh, then at five o'clock, because I'm out of high school, I'm living on my own, I can ingest whatever comestible substances I might want to in 1987. I'm probably going to flip over to Win, Lose, or Draw, which features Burt Reynolds and Mira, John Biner, and Susan Rutan, who then in parentheses and quotes, it says LA Law. So in other words, Burt Reynolds and Mira and John Biner are all famous enough yeah. for us just to list by name. But Susan Rutan, we have to list, oh, that woman from LA Law. Then... Since I'm stoned at the time, but not now, I would clip over to water skiing just because water skiing is cool to look at when you're feeling, you know, comestible. It's like you're really there. 1987 International Water Ski Tour. I bet that doesn't exist anymore. Then, Chris, full disclosure, it's 1987. I'm an 18-year-old male. Yeah, 5 of 30. I'm going to watch Club MTV because there were some things on there that young men liked to watch at the time. Sure. Shaking sure. butts and things of that sort, okay? And it's easier than going all the way to Florida. It's like just on your TV. Yeah. But then 
I'm now going to just like give up on the rest of the evening, just watch <laughs> straight TV straight to late night. The Assassination Bureau, classic 1969 British film, dry wit sparks this dark satire about an international organization that kills for profit, starring Ooh. Oliver Reed and Diana Rigg and Telly Savalas. Because, oh, you know, what a cast. England. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Young Frankenstein, got to watch that yeah. all the way through, featuring the great Madeleine Kahn. Flames. Of Clue fame. By the way, Jenny's necklace finally arrived. For those of you who listened to the Clue episode, we gave Jenny a Flames necklace featuring the image of Madeline Kahn. Then at nine o'clock, huge fan of Wise Guy back in the day. I don't know if you watched this show. Great Ken Wall vehicle. A great crime series from the late 80s. In this one, Sonny puts the heat on Vinny when he discovers that the local police have planted an unknown and deadly informer in Sonny's operation. Also features the great Jonathan Banks, who's awesome and you love him for many things. You're going to Google him and Oh, yeah, that guy. Annette Bening also guest stars on this episode. Wise Guy's a really good show. Really good 80s. You know, and I've always heard that, and I was um, sort of surprised because, you know, Ken Wall, I don't know what he sort of did after that, but he doesn't. Drugs? Oh, well, maybe that. (laughs) Allegedly. uh, It was really good for its time. It had real grit, and it has a good fish out of water story. A former ex con and is now undercover being pulled in various directions. It's pretty good. Oh, and yeah, duh, of course, Jonathan Banks. Uh, Then the Rockford Files is on, which, as you know, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, Too Close for Comfort, JMJ Bullock and Ted Knight together. Love it. I'm going to close it out at midnight with a favorite of the late 80s, Jack Horkheimer, Star Hustler. Do you remember this show? No. Okay. So this (laughs) Jack Horkheimer star hustler was this astronomy show. Wait, are you sure it's not called Jack? Oh, because when I put up the first thing, it was Stargazer. Star hustler. Then they changed it. Got it. Because society couldn't handle star hustler. I'm going to play you a little of the open here. This was always a great stoner favorite. Some people hustle pools. Some people hustle cars. Then there's that man you've heard about, the one who hustles stars. Jack Horkheimer, star hustler, director of Miami's Space Transit Planetarium. And now, here to tell you all about tonight's sky and the biggest show of all, the universe, your star hustler, Jack Horkheimer. Greetings, greetings, fellow stargazers. That's You're in. I love it. It's awesome. Although, I can understand why America couldn't handle... Star Hustler. What's well, the font they use specifically? It's you porny. Know, it's, it's porny. It's, but I think, what a great idea for a show. And he seems great. You would come across that and you were psyched. And I hate that they changed it to Stargazer. R.I.P. Jack Horkheimer. Jack Horkheimer Star Hustler is how I would definitely close things out at midnight. And then I'd hit the bed. That's it. Right on. Well, what a great way to spend your day. It sounds yeah. very productive. and sounds like you learned a lot. How not to live my life. It's all part of the journey. Yes. Well, Chris, take us out. Until next week. Remember, if you're having an existential crisis, that so did Murphy, caught between being man and machine. Systematic forces trying to tell him who and what he is just repeat this mantra. I don't want you. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.